invite you to stand. Let's sing this hymn together. There is a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains. Here, dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose. Song. I 
excited uh, to celebrate Good Friday with you tonight. I want to welcome you here to Faith Bible Church. And uh, as we continue tonight, we just want to take a little bit of time to really just focus and center our hearts on this day and on this time that we have tonight. So I invite you to just close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment. And uh, instead of saying just kind of a prayer over everyone here, uh, I want to lead you kind of in a short prayer, and then we're going to meditate on a few verses of Scripture before we continue to sing tonight. Uh, and I don't know how your, your week has been, how your day has been, uh, but the Lord desires uh, to meet with us here in this place tonight. And so uh, we just ask God to just come and just calm you, uh, to remove distractions, and to speak to you here in this place tonight. As Passion Week is beginning to come to a close, we are reminded, uh, as we often are, of, of our depravity, of, of how we could do nothing on our own uh, to earn our way to God. Scripture tells us in Isaiah, it says, We have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, they take us away. And while that is our place, Christ has then acted on our behalf. John 15 says that greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And as we gather here tonight, that is what we remember, the sacrifice that was made for us. Who for the joy that was set before him chose to endure the cross, despising shame, and he's currently seated at the throne of God. So as we continue to worship tonight, let's try and wrap our minds around the severity of that sacrifice. The price that was paid for us, the price that we earned, the price that we deserved, but the wrath that was paid in our place. let's thank you for the love that was shown for us on the cross let's continue to worship of your love maker of the universe broken for the sins of the earth all because of your love all because of your love because of cross my debt is paid because of your blood my sins are washed away now all of my life I freely 
innocent and holy King. You died to set the captive free, and all because of your love. Lord, you gave your life for me, so I will give my life for you, all because of your
your name. Oh, the wonderful cross. Good to see you. We are here tonight because nearly 2,000 years ago, a poor homeless carpenter in his early 30s was executed by crucifixion. He never wrote a book, he never traveled more than 200 miles from his home, never held a political office, never married or had children, and from what we know, had no formal education. His name, of course, is Jesus Christ. And despite his lack of resume, Human history is divided into the periods before and after his life, B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. And more songs have been sung to, books written about, and artwork painted of him than anyone who has ever lived. Moreover, a few billion people alive today worship him as the one true God, and they deeply love him. Why? Because Jesus has done what no one else could do. He has taken away their sin by dying on a cross as a substitute in their place. The central event in Jesus' life, really the central event in human history, was the cross that we just sang about. The English word crucial comes from the Latin crux, meaning cross. And crucial, that term means of supreme importance. So it's interesting that the language I speak takes a, takes a word directly related to the cross of Christ to signify something of absolute, utmost importance. It is the cross of Jesus that is the enduring symbol of the Christian faith and the literal crux of human history. The cross is the most widely recognized symbol in the world. Think about that. An ancient instrument of death is the single most recognizable and meaningful symbol in our existence. Some of you have one around your neck tonight, or maybe one on the wall in your home, or maybe you drive by the really huge one on I-35 every day. And it's fascinating because the ancient historian Josephus said of the cross that it is the most wretched of all things. Cicero, a Roman scribe, said no Roman should see or be subjected to even think upon the cross. 
C.S. Lewis said, the cross only become a, became a symbol of Christianity long after anyone who had actually seen one used had died off. In talking about the cross today, I, I cannot overstate the violence of the cross. I cannot overstate the pain of the cross. I cannot overstate the excruciating death that was death on a cross. In fact, that word excruciating actually means from the cross. The Persians invented the cross in about 450 B.C., and the use of the cross ended about the time of Constantine in 325 A.D. And it was a very common practice. It was the primary mode of execution in the Roman world. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were killed on the cross. In fact, one day, 6,000 soldiers, those soldiers who were alongside Spartacus, when that battle was lost, 6,000 of them were captured and they were all crucified on the same day along the Appian Way. 120 miles did that stretch. So it was, it was not done in obscurity. It was done on roads and in open places and in high traffic areas as a deterrent to crime and a reason for loyalty to Rome. So in our setting, this, this would mean... This kind of execution would be done at Hafer Park or on the corner of 33rd and Broadway or outside of Owen Field or Boone Pickens Stadium or, or these places that we go where we gather, where we congregate. And it would literally take days, as you know, for people to die. The Romans had perfected this instrument of death so that it was not just a death sentence, but a cruel and unusual torture device. It was used to really choke out the life of the body over not just hours, but even days. But with all of that, here's what is peculiar about the cross. It is good news. It is central to our understanding and our messaging of the gospel. The cross was the instrument used by God to atone for our sins. The, the English word atonement, it's constructed from two words, at and one. It means to set at one or to reconcile. Basically, it means to make right. And we first see this word atonement in the Old Testament, most directly associated with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the day in which the blood of an innocent animal was spilled for the sins of the people. And this system was not just a cultural religious practice, it was a shadow of the one who was to come. It, its purpose was to point to Jesus and his ultimate death on the cross, that final and satisfactory substitute for sinners. So when we gather for Good Friday, we are here not because, or not just because Jesus died, but that he died instead of us. And when we talk about substitution, we're talking about Christ not dying for us, but actually dying in our place. So a soldier or an officer might give his life for us, but a soldier doesn't die in our place. Our Lord walked into our execution chamber and sat where we deserved to sit. I want to go ahead and invite the ushers to begin handing out our elements for the Lord's Supper, supper the bread and the cup. And as you do this, let me just remind you, as you know, the Lord Jesus made seven profound statements from the cross. And two of the seven sayings from the cross underscore this idea of substitution that I've repeated a few times already this evening. And one of those statements is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
And for God to forsake God, that would mean that no abomination in the whole world had ever been as extreme as Jesus Christ on the cross. At that moment, as he hung there, he was murderer, he was thief, he was liar, he was cheat, he was deceiver and embezzler, he was adulterer, he was terrorist. He was everything sinful about you and everything evil in you and in all of us. He bore the sins of the world. He was not punished, or he was punished not as a sinner would be, but he was punished in that moment a sinner. He actually took the sin upon himself. The sin became his sin, and the wrath that it was due was directed completely on him. That's a doctrine we called imputation. Most vividly described in a single verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might know the righteousness of God in him. So he cried out, my God. The other statement from the cross that underscores substitution is that final statement, it is finished. The Greek word used is actually an accounting term. It means paid in full. And so in that moment, Christ knew in his mind exactly why he was hanging on that cross. And it was not to complete a dramatic story or to be some kind of victim. He was allowing himself to be killed in the place of you and me to pay the price of sin in full. In full. And so I want us to realize as we approach the Lord's table tonight, we do so with the cross directly in front of us. And I say that because we are Christians. The cross should always be directly in front of us. And as I have tried to describe the cross, maybe I've painted it as an ugly, ugly thing. But because of who died there, that ugly thing, as you know, is made beautiful. You can wear a cross around your neck, and it can be lovely. You can hang one in your living room, and it cannot just be tasteful, but incredibly meaningful. We can build a large one on the highway, and it's seen as a sign of love and victory. Why? I'll use the words of Charles Wesley. He said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So as the ushers pass the plates, let me remind you that you do not need to be a member of Faith Bible Church to take communion tonight. The only requirement we have to come to the Lord's table is you trusting in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. If you believe that he was your substitute on the cross, bearing the wrath of God in your place, we want you to come and celebrate this meal tonight. And we think that you will want to come and celebrate this meal together. If you've never taken it with us, we'll... The elements are passed, and you're going to be holding those. You hold those now. We'll take them one at a time as I instruct you alongside the corresponding scriptures. But before we do that, what I'd like for us to do is just go before the Lord in silence and in contemplation. Think about the cross. Think about Christ as your substitute. Think about your sin that took him there. But think about the victory that was accomplished in that place as well. Just go to the Lord in silence.
Scripture says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's pray for the bread together. Father, we hold this bread in our hand, a symbol of your son, the Lord Jesus. His perfect life. His righteousness and his broken body that was broken for us. And after he gave thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the, take the bread together. In the same way also he, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray for the cup. Father, as we sing tonight, as we gather here tonight, this is such an odd celebration because it really is a celebration of, of the blood of what is accomplished through the blood of Christ, the, the power in the blood of Christ, the cleansing and the forgiveness that comes with the shed blood of our Lord Jesus. So Lord, as we take this tonight, as we continue to sing and ponder tonight, God, just in a fresh way, invade our hearts and minds as to what it meant for your son to die in our place and shed his blood for us. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for its clear and compelling proclamation at this table. Lord, bless us as a church family as we've gathered here together. And Lord, continue to be with us as we seek to exalt and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.
you to stand as we continue to worship. Let's proclaim together how deep the Father's love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turned his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished 
will not boast in anything. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection why should i gain from his reward i cannot give an answer but this i know with all my heart his words have made my ransom why should i gain from I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, His words have paid my ransom, His words have paid my ransom. Let's pause for a moment and uh, bow our heads before the Lord. I love that old song that says, His his brow was pierced with many a thorn, His hands with cruel nails were torn, And from my guilt and grief forlorn, In love He lifted me. Father, You tell us in Your Word that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross, that He died for us, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Father, we thank You for that all-sufficient, a finished once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We pray now as we come to meditate upon Your Word and upon the person of Your Son that we would see Him tonight to be beautiful, we would delight in Him, that You would be pleased with the meditations of our hearts as we consider Your Son and His sacrifice. We ask these things in His precious name. Amen. The, uh, the first trip I, I ever went on to Israel uh, was back in 1994, and it was a really long trip. We were there for 21 days. We went, I mean, every, about everywhere you can go in the land, and part of it was an extension over to the land of Jordan um, on the east side of the Jordan River. And uh, one of the highlights of the trip for me, we went up to Mount Nebo, uh, which is the place where God took Moses, you remember, and he looked out and saw the promised land. He wasn't able to enter but he saw the promised land from there. And it's a, a really a breathtaking view from there as you look out into the land. There's a little more pollution there now, so it's probably not as clear as, as in Moses' day. But it's a, a beautiful scene there on Mount Nebo to, to think about Moses and all that he'd done leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and through the, the, the uh, wilderness. And then finally there in Mount Nebo, he gets to see the promised land. And there's an ancient church that's built, that was built there, and they've built a, a newer church, a modern church over that. So when you go there, the altar in that area is still the ancient church that was there. It's kind of dirt, and it's a beautiful, beautiful church and a chapel uh, that's there, a very remote place, very peaceful. Uh, but really the outstanding feature when you go up to Mount Nebo is a large uh, cross-shaped brass serpent on a tall pole. 
shaped like a cross. It's, it must be 25, 30, 35 feet tall. I don't know how tall it is, but you can see it from a long, long ways away when you're leaving Mount Nebo. You can, you can see that, that cross-shaped serpent that's there that's made out of, of bronze. And it's, it's put there, of course, for a reminder of one of the incidents that happened in the wilderness. Back in Numbers chapter 21. Let me read there for us. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. And they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on the standard, and it came about that if a, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, uh, he lived. Now, in John chapter 3, which is one of the most familiar chapters in the Bible, certainly John 3.16, the best-known verse in the Bible, in John chapter 3, Jesus uses this story from the Old Testament as an illustration of the cross. And this is the only illustration Jesus ever uses for the cross. So it must be significant. It's the only illustration he uses. So if you'll go over to John 3 now, we'll see how Jesus uses this illustration there. You all know the story, and Nicodemus comes at night to Jesus, this Pharisee, this ruler of the Jews, and he says, we, we know that you must be from God. Nobody can do these kind of signs you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus utters these uh, powerful words, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see uh, the kingdom of God. Of course, this throws Nicodemus for a loop here. He's trying to figure out what this means about being born again. And Jesus goes on and discusses it a bit. But when you get down to, uh, to verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? How can these things be? In other words, how does this happen? Jesus has been telling him, you have to be born again, but how can these things be? How is a person born again? How does it happen that we receive uh, eternal life? How does this spiritual transformation take place? And Jesus gives the answer in verses 13 uh, through 15. And he says this, he, he first gives us the source of this salvation. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And the point he's making there is, only someone who has been to heaven can tell you how to get there. Now, I've descended from heaven and I've come down from there, so I'm the authority on how you get to heaven and how you're born again. And so one of the things we know is we're totally dependent upon God for divine revelation. No way a person on their own is ever going to understand these things. Someone from heaven has to come down and has to tell us. So that's the source of it. But then in verses 14 and 15, we see the simplicity of salvation. Jesus gives the answer to how a person is born again here in verses 14 and 15. And I love this. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be. 
be lifted up. Now, Nicodemus would have been very familiar with this story. Any Jew that's hearing Jesus would have known about this. The, this, this snake was symbolic here of uh, the, the, uh, the, the sin that was in them and that had bitten them and uh, caused them to complain against God. One little aside here, three times Jesus speaks of himself being lifted up. And all three times he's referring to the cross. It's here in John 3. You find it in John 8. And then again in John chapter 12. That he's going to be lifted up. And I think there's two things. There's kind of a double meaning. Jesus certainly was lifted up. That is, he was lifted up from the earth and hung between the earth and the sky there on the cross. So physically he was lifted up. But I think there's also a spiritual meaning there is. That is, Jesus is to be lifted up by us in esteem and in reverence. He says at one point, he says, If I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. And certainly he was lifted up physically, but when we lift him up as well through our praise and through our testimony, men are drawn uh, to him. What I want to look at just for a few moments here is four striking parallels between the serpent in the wilderness and the cross of Christ because Jesus draws this parallel here as an illustration of what he does for us. The first thing we see here is that we all have been bitten by sin just as they had been bitten by serpents. Every one of us have been bitten by sin just as they had been bitten by serpents. Uh, we're all snake bit, if you will. That's a good way to put it, right? There's no exceptions to this. I mean, even Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, needed to be born again. Um, even religious people are doomed by sin, even people like Nicodemus. So all of us have been bitten by sin just as those people were bitten by serpents. The second thing we see here is we are all dying of sin just as they were dying from those snake bites. The deadly venom of sin is coursing through our veins and it brings death um, if the remedy um, is not discovered. And so we have this problem of sin that's coursing through the veins of every one of us. Unless we find God's remedy, uh, we will die spiritually. The third thing, and this is beautiful to me, Jesus became sin for us just as the bronze serpent symbolized what had afflicted the people. Now think about this for a moment. God had Moses make a serpent that was bronze for them to look to. So they were looking to the very thing that had afflicted them uh, with death. And so in the same way, Jesus becomes what has afflicted us. He becomes sin for us. Do you see the connection there? The Bible tells us that Jesus became sin for us, that he became a curse for us, that he was lifted up on the cross like a serpent, becoming uh, what it was that had caused us uh, to die spiritually. Uh, the verse Jay referred to a few moments ago, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus became sin for us just as that serpent symbolized what had afflicted the people. He became a sin for us. And then the fourth parallel that we see here is that we are to look to Jesus Christ in faith to be healed of our sin just as they look to that serpent to be healed. It's just a simple gaze of faith. In fact, the next verse tells us here in John 15, uh, John 3, 15, and whoever believes may in him have eternal life. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, what did they have to do back in Numbers 21 to be saved? Look to that serpent. That's all they had to do. And he's saying you have to look to Jesus Christ to be saved. And that's a synonym for believing in Him. You look to Him in faith, and you believe in Him, and you trust in Him. And the beauty of this is the simple gaze of faith at Jesus Christ saves us just as the look to that serpent saved them. And nothing more is required. All you have to do is just look and live. That's it. Uh, To put it in our language today, Jesus didn't say, you have to look to me and then give 10% to the church. Or you have to look to me and be baptized. Or you have to look to me and pray. You have to look to me and join the church. Or you have to look to me and, and have great sorrow over your sin. Or you have to, he didn't even say you have to look twice. He just said you have to look to me and believe and you'll be saved. We just look and we live. And we can look to Christ wherever we are and whatever our condition in life may be, and we can receive from Him eternal life. No matter how long uh, we've been snake bit, if you will, no matter how long that the sin has been coursing through our veins unhindered, any person who's still alive on this earth can look to Him in faith and receive life. No matter how badly you've been bitten, no matter how many times you've been bitten, no matter how long you've been bitten, all you could do is look to Him and be healed by a look. And this is the heart of Christianity. I mean, the very next verse, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son for us to be lifted up to be made sin for us so that all we have to do is look to Him in faith and receive the free gift of eternal life. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on the book of John, he says this, Man became a lost sinner by a look. For the first thing recorded of Eve in connection with the fall of our first parents is that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. In like manner, the lost sinner, he says, is saved by a look. The Christian life begins by looking. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. The Christian life continues by looking. Let us run with patience the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And then he says, at the end of the Christian life, we're still to be looking for Jesus. From first to last, the one thing required is looking at God's Son. That's the gospel message. It's simple. That's the, the centrality of it. So the difference between living and perishing, between condemnation and salvation, is faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus answers Nicodemus' Nicodemus's question, how can a person be born again? How are we saved from eternal perishing? And the answer is simply looking to Jesus Christ in faith. He says clearly that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. We simply look to him and we live. I love reading stories about the conversions of famous people. One of the greatest conversions in Christianity was January the 6th, 1850. It was the conversion of Charles Spurgeon, who um, has influenced the entire world for uh, literally a a century after his life ended. Um, Spurgeon's story begins, he was a lad of 15 years of age, brought up in a Christian family, had read Pilgrim's Progress many times, read through the Bible, but he was under deep conviction of, of his sin. 
and it was a, a blizzard of a morning, and he was making his way to a service in a place called Colchester, but there was a, a terrible blizzard, and he realized he wasn't going to make it. So instead, he saw, uh, back then there was it's a denomination called the Primitive Methodists, he saw a Primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street, and he just slipped in there. It was the nearest place he could find cover. And here's Spurgeon's testimony. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid, <laughs> as Virgin says. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. And the preacher began and said thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but there ain't no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by, but Jesus says, look to me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look to me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look at me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look to me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look to me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. He said when he'd gone to about, the, about that length, he managed to spin out about 10 minutes, and he was at the end of his tether. Now anything else to say? Then he looked at me under the gallery, and there was hardly anybody there that morning, bitter cold morning. And I dare say with so few present, he knew that I was a stranger. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. And he said, well, I did, but I've not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, he said, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable if you don't obey my text, but if you obey me now this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, you have nothing to do but look and live. And I saw at once, he says, the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but I heard that word look. What a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. What a testimony that is. That's the testimony of Charles Spurgeon. He looked and he lived. And that is the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the cross by Jesus himself. He says, all you have to do is just look to me. I'm lifted up. Look to me and you'll live.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the simplicity of the Gospel. We thank You for the sufficiency of the Gospel. And we thank You for the, the sure message of the Gospel. It's backed up by God Himself. But all we do is we look and live, and we have life and forgiveness. Father, I pray if there's someone who's come here tonight who's maybe never looked to Jesus to be saved, through our time in the Lord's Supper and the songs we've sung tonight and the exposure to the Word of God, that like Spurgeon many years ago, they'd look to Jesus and live. Father, we thank you, all of us here that know you, that you've made it so simple for us. All we have to do is just look to the crucified one receive eternal life. Father, help us to keep looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to look for Him, for His coming again, to be looking for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be looking. We ask these things in our precious Savior's name. Amen. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. I invite you to stand, let's sing that again. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Because you were forsaken, I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me, because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it my King would die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you in all I do. I honor you. And I'm forgiven. Because you were forsaken, I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me, because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you in all I do. 
Spurgeon is an encouragement to all of us, and one of the things that should encourage us is you don't have to, to be eloquent and know all the answers to share this good news. I'm here, Spurgeon, you're this great prince of preachers, was saved by this, uh, the message from this man who couldn't even pronounce the words rightly when he was preaching, and it just shows how uh, really the, the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to man, but it's the power of God. So let's not keep this good news to ourselves, so let's pray and ask God to give us opportunities to go out and share it with those we know. And, of course, ultimately, the the cross of Jesus Christ is good news because uh, he can give us life because he rose again three days later. And that's what we'll be back here on Sunday morning uh, to celebrate together, the glorious uh, resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together now for the benediction as we uh, leave here with uh, God's hand of blessing upon us. Father, we come before you now, and again, we thank you for a simple, a sure, um, a sufficient salvation that you've given to us. And. Father, I pray if there's someone who's come here uh, this evening and maybe they're burdened and they're wondering if you really love them, they're wondering maybe if they're really saved, if they really know you, uh, that you just grip their heart with the simplicity of this message. If they've looked to you in faith, uh, they live. Uh, their, their sins have been washed away. They have life. And now, Father, we ask you to dismiss us with your blessing. We pray that our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God our Father, who's loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, will comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and every word. All God's people said.